So we have spent several months now in the book of First Peter. It's clear by now that Peter uh, was writing to Christians in Asia Minor who were suffering persecution for their faith. So he, he told them, and actually us, make sure that you live beautiful lives among unbelievers, even those that oppose you, so they see your good works and your strong faith and might be attracted, or at least intrigued, what is the reason for this hope that you have? Now, last time we were in the book uh, together a couple of weeks ago, he said, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal, meaning the persecution. Instead, rejoice because you are blessed. Don't suffer for doing evil. Instead, suffer for being a Christian. Don't be ashamed of that name. Instead, glorify God that you suffer for the name. That was a bit hard to hear, wasn't it? That the Christian life is hard. That it is not the prosperity that many promise. It is actually quite challenging. So what are we to do when we face opposition? It seems that we have a few choices. First, we can disguise ourselves, go into hiding. I mean, no one really wants to invite persecution, right? So I'll just, I'll just fly under the radar. I'll, I'll, I'll be good. I'll do good things. I'll be nice, maybe even occasionally kind, but, but I'll keep my faith to myself. I mean, two, two things that people don't talk about, we've always heard, are, are politics and religion. Well, at least except for Facebook, um, so, so I will become an incognito Christian. Or second, we can defend ourselves, right? We can, we, we can become very defensive. We can circle the wagons like the church has done for some time now. We can develop a fortress mentality, keep those dirty sinners out and hide in our Christian bunkers, only showing our faces as we run from Christian foxhole to Christian foxhole, never really rubbing so- shoulders with the enemy as if unbelievers are the enemy. But there is, a, there is a third option. We can choose to be the church. We can realize that being light in darkness, a city on a hill, will invite opposition. There is a cost for us being followers of Jesus, but we want others to become followers with us, and so if we suffer for sharing our faith, so be it. You know, it's interesting, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first uh, recorded sermon that Jesus preached, he started with those Beatitudes. You remember those. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, in the emphatic in the Greek, theirs, and theirs alone um, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You, you remember those, but he finished with one that we've referred to a lot lately. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs, and theirs alone, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. <laughs> well, then it's, it's almost like Jesus knew what our 
Well, what our natural tendencies would be, how we would want to disguise ourselves or defend ourselves, develop that fortress mentality to escape and hide behind the walls of the church. Because the very next thing that he says is this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, that is if salt doesn't do what it's supposed to do, flavor life or preserve life, how can it be made salty again? It's good for nothing. Throw it out. Trample it underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't light a lamp and hide it under a bowl. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Peter said, live such good lives among unbelievers that though they oppose you, they may because of your good works glorify God. Oh yeah, that's right, Peter was there when Jesus preached that sermon by the Sea of Galilee that day. So it seems that disguising ourselves or defending ourselves aren't really legitimate options for us. Rather, we are to let our light shine before men. We're to live beautiful lives, do good deeds in the name of Jesus, sharing the gospel so that some will be saved. This has been the message of 1 Peter. Yes, he says, I know you're struggling. Keep it up. You will receive praise and honor and glory when Jesus comes back. This is all going to be worth it. Well, that brings us to chapter 5, the last chapter in the book. And, and very interestingly, interestingly, it begins with the word, therefore. Now, uh, many translations, like the NIV, King James, leave that out uh, inexplicably. And leaving out the conjunction, conjunction plus the fact that we are starting a new chapter causes many to think that we're making a right turn, changing subjects. Indeed, when you look at the, at the first few verses, it, it sure seems like it. But, but then when we get to verse 8 and following, Peter starts talking about suffering again. So, so maybe, just maybe, these verses have to do with how the church, namely leadership, should conduct itself in the midst of suffering. Maybe the therefore belongs. In light of the suffering that we face, not being surprised but rejoicing, not being ashamed but glorifying God, in light uh, of the fact that God uses suffering to purify the church, therefore, Look at 1 Peter 5, 1 and following. Therefore, elders, because God's people, that is God's sheep, are suffering, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, that means money, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over, the, uh, lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We have here a great passage on the duties of elders in the church, and, I, and I'm going to talk about that, but, but can I begin by reminding us of the context? Elders, I am talking to us. 
God's sheep, his flock of which Jesus is the chief shepherd and we are but mere under shepherds, that flock is suffering. So shepherd them well. They are getting abused out there. They don't need to be abused in here. I cannot begin to imagine the trouble false teachers will face as they have sought to fleece the flock of God. Let me give you the quick outline that we're going to follow. We're going to see Peter exhorts elders. It actually begins by giving the, the basis by which he exhorts them, by identifying with them. And then we're going to see the duties of elders. That is what they do and what they don't do. And then we're going to see the reward of elders. And, and now, about now, I know, uh, you're, you're thinking about turning me off. I mean, I'm not an elder. This doesn't have much to do with me. And I would suggest to you it actually does. You see, we will start by talking about the different kinds of church governing structures, church leadership, and why we believe ours to be the most biblical, effective, and actually good for you. And you can also know that what you can expect from your elders. You see, at Alliance, we have people from many different church backgrounds. Now, as I say that, let me be clear, it is not that we're so middle of the road that everyone, regardless of faith background, fits here. There are churches like that out there. That's not us. Rather, we are a people, regardless of denominational background, that doesn't matter. We are a people who are passionately committed to the Scripture. We believe in the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the authority of the Bible, such that if it says it, we just believe it. That, and that includes governing structures. If you boil them all down, you'll find that there are basically three or perhaps four kinds of church governing structures. First is what is called the episcopal form of government, which comes from the word, the Greek word, episkopos. The word is usually translated bishop or overseer in your Bibles. This kind of government is somewhat hierarchical and and recognizes a bishop as the highest authority over a local church or more likely a group of churches. The the most obvious example is uh, the bishop of Rome. We call him the pope. On the local church level, the, the priest, perhaps the rector, is the final authority. But the bishop is the overseer, usually, again, over a group of churches. Incidentally, this kind of structure arose fairly early in church history, as early as the, the second century. Second, on the opposite end of that, and I think actually important for us today, is the congregational form of government, which is very popular in U.S. churches because this form is most democratic. It most it most closely resembles the U.S. Constitution. Can I remind us that our highest governing document is not the U.S. Constitution. It is the Word of God. We like congregational rule because it is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It gives us, everyone, a say in church decisions. The question I would have you ponder is, while this form is most American, (laughs) is it most biblical? Incidentally, the congregational form often finds itself held hostage at the hands of a powerful few in the church, those who have either been there the longest or give the most money, or, or it is held hostage by a domineering 
pastor. He's a dictator under the guise of a democracy, which leads to, I guess, a kind of third form of church government in many churches. Maybe it isn't stated this way, but it is this way by practice. It's called the CEO or the senior pastor model, where the senior pastor is the highest authority at the local church level, and what he says goes. I could name churches. Let me just leave that alone. Unfortunately, while quite common, this kind of structure carries no biblical support and little accountability. I am most opposed to this one. The fourth kind of government is the kind that we have, the Presbyterian form of government, which comes from the from the Greek word presbyteros, presbyterian. The word is usually translated elder uh, in your Bibles. In this structure, the spiritual authority at the local church level is a group of elders. Not one elder per church, that would be a bishop or the dictator model, but a plurality of elders in each church. Who, uh, who those elders are, how they are appointed, and how long they serve varies from church to church, but the bottom line is the elders um, are the governing authority. Now, I would say very, very lovingly, nowhere in the New Testament do we see an example. We find it in the Constitution, but nowhere in the Bible do we find an example of congregational rule. We do see the congregation acting, making decisions under the authority of the elders, such as when they selected the first deacons um, in Acts chapter 6. It's actually easier uh, to find an example of Episcopal or bishop rule in the person of the Apostle Paul as he directed the churches that he had planted. But even then, Paul directed that elders be appointed in every church. Don't take my word for it. Let's look at a few verses. The first mention of the word elder in relation to the church, and I'll stop right there a moment, in relation to the church. You see, the concept of elder is actually an old one. All the way back in the Old Testament. There you find uh, elders led the nation of Israel. At the beginning of the New Testament, elders were part of that ruling body that we call the Sanhedrin at a national level, and even local synagogues had elders. So it was quite natural for this new Christian faith to adopt the practice under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, the first mention of elders in relation to the church, as you might expect, is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. Without explanation, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas were sent with a gift from the church uh, of Antioch to the elders of the church in Judea, actually Jerusalem. All of a sudden, the elders just appear. No explanation, no introduction. The, the, the next time we find them is in Acts chapter 14 where Paul and Barnabas were traveling through the churches that they had founded in their first missionary journey, Antioch, Antioch Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and they, quote, appointed elders for them in every church. Notice plural elders, singular church. Later in Acts chapter 15, we get to the Jerusalem Council, and we see the apostles and the elders met to discuss the salvation law issue for Gentiles. I bring this passage to your mind because elders, again, appear without explanation, but we see they had the responsibility to discuss and make decisions regarding truth and practice. In Acts chapter 20, we see Paul call for the elders of the Ephesian church, again, plural elders, singular church, to give them instructions. 
And we remember this is where Timothy was when Paul wrote 1 Timothy and gave that exhaustive list of qualifications of elders. In other places, Paul wrote things like in Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. I was listening to a sermon uh, once where the, the, the pastor, I, I won't name him, but he, he was explaining this verse, and he says, you know, the overseers, he says, you know, that's the pastor. And I thought, I want to go through the screen. I thought, no, it's not the pastors. It's the overseers. It's plural. It's not you, dude. It's, pa- it's overseers and deacons. Titus chapter 1, Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order um, what remains and appoint elders in every city. First Timothy 3, Titus 1, Paul gives the very, again, extensive qualifications for elders. I might add that both James and obviously Peter uh, mention elders in their letters. The fact is they are all over the New Testament, so the question I want us to answer, uh, the questions I want us to answer are, what is an elder and what are, what, what are their duties? That is, what do they do? I would say if you are one of our elders listening, I would encourage you to pay very close attention because everyone else is. And they're going to hear what they can expect from us as we seek to serve them. The, the, the first thing I want you to see in the scripture is that the, the Bible uses three different words to refer to the elder in the local church. I believe that they refer to one and the same person and or office. The first is obviously elder, that's the word presbuteros. This title is used most extensively in the New Testament because it was one with which the Jewish people were most familiar. It was natural, um, the term would be used to speak of the church and its leaders. But the second term is overseer, that's that word episkopos. Peter and Paul, uh, uh, Paul and actually I should say Peter here, uses those two words but they use them interchangeably. For example, in Titus chapter 1, where Paul gives the qualifications for elders, we read in verse 5, for this reason, I left you in Crete, right, to appoint elders in every city. He then gives the qualifications for elders and says in verse 7, for the overseer, he switches the term. The overseer must be above reproach. My point is, is that elders are overseers and overseers are elders. Some suggest the office is elder and the duty is overseeing, whatever. The third term is found here in our text where Peter tells elders to shepherd the church. The word uh, for shepherd uh, or to shepherd or be shepherds is the verb form of the word poimen, which is translated throughout the New Testament as Shepherds. The only place, there's only one place in the Bible where the word is translated differently in Ephesians 4 where it is translated pastor. And you should know that pastor is an old English word for one who takes care of sheep. Pastor, then, is our English word for this function of the elder as shepherd. All that to say this, an elder is an overseer, is a pastor, and that he shepherds the church. All that, by way of introduction, brings us to, don't worry, I'm trying to go fast, 1 Peter chapter 5. Here, Peter gives us some duties of elders, keeping in mind that these responsibilities are carried out, my brother elders, my fellow elders, are carried out in the midst of crisis. I can't help but think of our current crisis, and while not the result of persecution necessarily, necessarily, 
the principles still apply. Notice how Peter exhorts elders in verse one by appealing to three of his own qualifications for doing so, which is interesting. He does not appeal to his apostolic authority. He instead comes alongside them as one with them. He, he, he says, therefore, in light of the current crisis, I exhort, I strongly encourage the elders among you to do some things, and he'll finally get to that in verses two and three, but first he gives these three personal qualifications very quickly. First, I am a fellow elder. We don't know if the apostles were all automatically elders in the local church. It would certainly make sense, but they were at least spiritual leaders, and Peter calls himself not an apostle here, but a fellow elder. Interesting word. It's only used here in the New Testament. It seems Peter made it up, but he does so because he wants to come alongside his fellow elders. Second, he reminds them that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Why does he do that? Because I'm calling you to suffering. I've reminded you that Jesus suffered. And now based on both his teaching and his example, I'm calling you to lead elders as he led through suffering. Think about it. As elders or leaders in a group facing suffering, they would have the biggest targets on their chests. Thirty says, with you I am a partaker, I am also a partaker of the glory to be revealed when Jesus returns. It's interesting he uses the present tense. I am already a partaker with you of the glory that is coming. It is not yet here in its fullness, but, but, but I do and will participate with you in that glory. He's held that promise out to us um, throughout the book. Glory is coming. It's already ours, but the best is yet to come. Which brings us to the duties of elders then in verses two and three, which he highlights by way of kind of a comparison contrast, if you will. That is, do this, but don't do this. I'll break them down into the following two duties. First and foremost is to shepherd to shepherd the flock of God among you. I say foremost because it's the main verb of this command, and the other duty is a participle supporting this idea of shepherding. Elders, shepherd the flock of God. The first thing that we should note is that the flock, that is the church, is God's. It is not ours. Every once in a while, we will speak of our church here, Alliance as our church or my church, meaning this is the church to which I belong. But, but we, especially as elders, as pastors, should never refer to this church as my church in terms of possession. It is not ours. It belongs to God. And Acts 20 says that he bought it with his own blood. He paid a high price. This is God's church. So what then do shepherds do? When Peter says to shepherd the flock, how do we do that? I would point out four things. First, they are to, what do shepherds do? They lead the flock. That's what a shepherd does. He doesn't drive the sheep, he leads the sheep. Paul said it in a number of different ways. In Acts 20, he says that they are to keep watch over the flock. In 1 Timothy 5, they are to direct the affairs of the church. 1 Timothy 3, he says, if any man doesn't know how to manage his own house, how will he manage the affairs of the church or take care of the church of God? Elders then are to lead and direct and govern and manage the flock. 
They, are they, they have the responsibility to oversee the ministries of the church to make sure the church meets the God-given mandate of making disciples. Second, I would suggest they are to feed the flock, an extremely important function uh, of shepherds, of, of elders. How do they feed? Through sound instruction of the word of God, be that in an official or unofficial way. Which is why one of the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 is that they are able to teach. Again, this is a massive responsibility. To, to Timothy, he says things like this throughout the book of 1 Timothy. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Guard the good deposit. Be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine. Prescribe and teach these things. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Elders are worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. He ends, he ends that book of 1 Timothy with, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Do you think for a moment that sound doctrine, that teaching was important to Paul? In Titus 1, Paul elaborates when he says the elder is to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, in other words, false teachers. It is the elder's job to feed the sheep sound teaching from the Bible, which leads to the third responsibility. Elders as shepherds are to protect the flock. I want you to know that we take that very seriously. A major part of their work is to protect the local church from false teaching. He told Timothy, I left you in Ephesus to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. He told Titus, refute those who contradict. It's what shepherds do. Paul told the Ephesian elders to be on their guard against false teachers. In keeping with the metaphor, he calls them Wolves who come from both outside and inside, by the way, seeking to work their way into the church and destroy it for their own selfish motives. So elders, protect the flock from false teaching, which of course requires that we know truth. It's why, by the way, that I regularly point out false teachers, and I do so occasionally by name, and I know that irritates people sometimes, but I want you to know that I do so because I know that you as God's sheep are exposed to them. I'm not just being critical, I believe that I'm doing my job. Fourth, er elders are to meet the flock's many other practical needs. In, in Acts 20, we, we read, in everything I, that is Paul, showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. The elders, in caring for the flock, are to care for the weak. In James 5, he says we do that primarily through prayer. Is anyone among you sick or weak? that could be spiritually weak or physically weak, then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. In other words, elders meet the very practical needs of the body. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, wow, being an elder sounds an awful lot by being a pastor, you're right. That is exactly what they are. The, the, the pastors at Alliance, we get the title pastor because we have the uh, privilege of doing this vocationally and getting paid for it. But, but we have a number of non-paid pastors, if you will, non-paid elders 
who, who serve you well. We have a great group of elders. I want you to understand that I do not run this church. The staff pastors do not run this church. We serve with a very capable group of gifted men that God has given to this church. And I can tell you without hesitation that they love you and it is their desire to serve and lead you well. So first, elders shepherd the church. Secondly, and this is that participle that supports shepherding, they they shepherd by exercising oversight. That is, they have the spiritual oversight responsibility of the flock. And and notice how um, elders are not supposed to do that, how they do it and not do it. They, They are to do so voluntarily, not under compulsion. That is, they should have a desire to shepherd and oversee the flock something that they want to do. They should not be forced into it. The very first qualification of of an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is actually in verse 1. If anyone desires the office of an overseer, elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. And that's why, for example, when I ask someone, you've been been nominated by the nominating committee to serve as an elder, if they say, yeah, I I don't think so, I say, okay, thank you very much. I I don't want to twist anyone's arm and force them to be an elder. They should have a desire to do it. Do it voluntarily. Second, they are to do the task with eagerness, not for sordid or unseemly gain. In other words, elders aren't elders, pastors aren't pastors for the money. Many in the prosperity movement need to read this verse. Third, while elders may provide oversight, they don't set themselves up as lords over the church, lording over the church. This comes straight out, uh, straight from Jesus' own teaching. Where he said, don't be like the Gentiles, that is unbelievers, who seek positions of authority to rule over people, like proud, pompous people. Rather, the ones who seek to lead should be the servants of all. Instead of lording over the church, they serve as examples, Peter says, to the church, uh, to the flock. They should be men that you respect, men that you follow, in as much as they follow Christ. They are examples in their lives and in conduct. Very interesting timing, by the way, for this particular sermon. I didn't do this intentionally. Um, but we are in the process of electing um, our, our elders. You received an email about that this week, if you're a member. They, they should be men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, and they should be shepherds who oversee well as servants and who set the proper example. And doing so very quickly, I'm almost done, kids. Three more paragraphs. Verse four, last point, they will be rewarded for their faithful work. Peter says, perform these duties well, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's the only place in, um, in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as the chief shepherd. But there are, of course, a number of places that refer to God's people as sheep and Jesus as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. If he's the chief shepherd and we are under shepherds, we ought to lay down our lives for God's people. The church is his flock and it only makes sense that he is the chief shepherd. It's interesting, as the chief shepherd, all the other under shepherds are accountable to him. Further, I would point out, since pastor is the old English word for shepherd, Jesus is truly the chief pastor or 
senior pastor of this church, not me. Perform your duties well, and you will receive an unfading crown. That word unfading is... uh, Speaks of a flower, a red flower, uh, an amaranth, I think is what it's called, um, that, that keeps its brilliant red color, unfading crown of glory. People at this time would have made an immediate connection. If you won an Olympic event, you received a laurel wreath, which faded quickly, right, as it dried out, faded quickly with time. But here Peter says, the crown given by Christ to his faithful, un- faithful under shepherds will never fade, it is eternal. I'm done, here's my point for today. God has given leaders in the church that we call elders. They are responsible to shepherd the flock of God voluntarily, with eagerness, without allowing the authority to go to their heads and not for personal gain. And in the midst of hardship, certainly persecution against the church, but in the midst of hardship of any kind, principally, shepherd, I'm I'm speaking to my fellow elders, Shepherd the flock of God well. He loves the church. He loves this church. He bought it with his own blood.